1: Thank you, Scott. I am Brian Sullivan. In for Kelly, here's what's ahead. The November jobs number coming in hot. As a result, stocks, they're not. But we are way off session lows. Are we back to like good news is bad news or is the market overreacting? We'll look at what, if anything, today's report does the Fed's tightening plan and what you can do with your money in the meantime. Here's an idea buy farmland. It is becoming, or has become, a red hot asset class and inflation hedge We'll look at what makes it attractive and how you can add it to your portfolio. I guess you just buy farmland. And there's the OPEC plus meeting, the looming EU sanctions, and the just announced likely $60 price cap on Brent crude oil. We are at a critical touch point for the global energy market. We are gonna look at the week ahead, how it could all play out in three very different scenarios about next week and the weeks and months ahead for energy. All of that, but we begin with Mr. Dominic Chu and the markets. Don. A
2: decidedly red day that has become less so, to your point, Brian. After those jobs numbers and the average hourly earnings numbers came out, the ones you will be discussing way more in depth throughout the course of this hour, I'm sure, we saw markets and futures sell off precipitously. We've come back well off those lows right now. Currently, the Dow Industrial is down about 119 points, one-third of 1% declines, 34,269. 4,051 is the last trade in the S&P. We're down 25 points. Again, the trading range today at the highs down relatively just about 12 points and then down about 50 points at the lows of the session. So again, a down day, but well off those session lows that we've seen. The Nasdaq Composite, 11,388, down 94 points, about three-quarter of 1% declines here. One thing that has been in focus on the heels of that economic data, jobs or otherwise, has been the interest rate complex. Ten-year note yields, because of that hot inflation number, did tick higher, markedly so again, up towards uh, highs that we haven't seen over the last couple of days. But as you can see now, we've kind of moderated a bit and back kind of towards that little medium-term downtrend that we've seen in yields. So, yes, the spike higher in yields was right after the news. And then all of a sudden, we've resumed kind of towards the downside, flatline side of things. We'll keep an eye on those moves in Treasury yields. And by the way, because those Treasury yields had spiked and then moderated, we've seen a steady climb higher off the session lows for many of the names that are characterized as growthier. Technology, media, telecom, or otherwise, Check out the intraday chart of these three names, Microsoft, MetaPlatforms, and Netflix. We've seen them kind of move off of those session lows that we saw right after those jobs numbers came out, especially when it comes to names like MetaPlatforms and Netflix. So we'll keep an eye and see whether or not those technology trades continue some momentum or whether or not those jobs numbers really did put a little bit of that headwind towards that growth trade. Bri, I'll send things back over to
1: you. Dom, appreciate it. As always, thank you. All right, so when bad news is good news, that is kind of one takeaway from today's jobs number. I mean, it's good for people. It may be bad necessarily for the market and inflation. America's labor market is strong, and average hourly earnings continue to grow. And again, while that is very good news for workers, you want to make more than make less, maybe it's not such good news for Fed watchers and investors that were maybe actually betting on a potentially slower pace of hikes. Joining us now is Kathy Bosjancic, chief economist, at nationwide neutral it's good news kathy we want people to, to make more money have more jobs be more prosperous that's what it's all about do you think though that this number being pretty good does change fed thinking
3: well oh, brian happy to be with you um well i, I think if anything it's going to embolden them uh to to continue to uh raise rates to a restrictive level um they've been very resolute in saying that inflation needs to slow down. Unfortunately, today's numbers um, don't really support um, the idea that it's going to slow rapidly. Um, and particularly Chairman Powell spoke about that earlier in the week, um, the, this connection between wage growth and core services excluding the rental market, right? Because we all know that rental prices in real time, uh, the, the inflation slowing. So, it, unfortunately, it, it could continue to keep the economy running a bit hotter. In fact, we look like we're on course to accelerate in the fourth quarter to to over 3%. Um, and meanwhile, the Fed wants things to slow down. They don't want to obviously throw everyone out of a mm-hmm. job and, and, and to have a recession. But they would like to see below um, a potential growth rate. And, and, yeah. and in fact, we're getting just the opposite.
1: Was there anything in the jobs number that alarmed you at all? Or was it pretty much good news across the board?
3: Well, it's really good news in terms of activity, but the wage number you know, clearly was um, shocking. Um, you saw the um, overall increase uh, month-to-month pick up, uh, you know, six-tenths, and, and, and many of us, including myself, were looking for just a three-tenths increase, which still is quite healthy. If you annualize, that's three-sixths. You know, pre-pandemic, we were running three percent. So now we're at, you know, we're still at, you know, over five percent in terms of overall wages, and then production workers— it's even higher. We're running it at 5.8. So that's just too hot. That's too good um, for the Fed Reserve. And I think, unfortunately, for the markets. Now, the markets took it in stride today, as you said, both bond market and, and the equity market. Quite surprising, actually. Um, and the bond market is still looking for the Fed to ease next year. And I think that's the problem. I think that's where the markets get tripped up. I think this is the Fed saying, we've got to slow things down. We're going to raise rates to at least 5 percent and hold it there for a year.
1: And are you in the, we will have a recession next year camp?
3: Uh, yes. Uh, unfortunately, I do think it takes a recession to cool things down, but we, we're in you know, a moderate camp. Um, you know, Typically, peak to trough and recession, exclude the great financial crisis and COVID, um, a decline of 2%. We're looking for a decline of 1.6%. So you know, not mild, but kind of a more moderate. Um, but then balance sheets still look good. So that could help you know, even as we come out of the uh, um, recession.
1: Yeah. And what would that change then if, if we get this mild recession? And let's hope if we get one, it is mild. Does that necessarily mean then the Fed pivots and starts cutting? Because that's kind of now the debate. The rate hike debate's kind of over. I mean, we know hikes are coming, but it, they're closer to being done than starting. The next debate, as you know, is going to be, OK, when do they pivot or do they just stay put for like three years?
3: Yes, that is definitely yeah, the debate. And the markets are weighing in and saying, oh, we think they're going to start cutting rates, you know, possibly by the middle of next year, certainly by, by Q4. Um, we just think that's too quick of a turnaround for the Federal Reserve, just given all the, the evidence we've seen so far, the data and inflation. Um, we think one year, you know, get it to a bit above 5 percent, hold it for a year, that, that should be sufficient. Um, But it's really going to depend on the inflation numbers, right? And we now know what to focus on. It's poor services excluding um, real estate or or rental prices.
1: Kathy Botts-Jancic of Nationwide Mutual. Real pleasure to have you on again, Kathy. Take care.
3: Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Brian. All
1: right. So your next guest thinks that investors should be prepared for more rougher seas ahead and also maybe a recession next year. But again, even in these kind of markets, folks, there are some companies and stocks that he likes, that can ride out the volatility, that may even prosper. Let's bring in Bill Stone, Chief Investment Officer at Glenview Trust. And there is this sort of idea, Bill, that you know, recession—it's a scary word. Oh gosh, markets must come down; stocks are going to come down. It feels like everything I'm reading suggests much of the hit—maybe not all, but much of the hit—for next year already happened this year. What's
0: your thought? Yeah, I mean it, it, that duty the typical, right, is you typically see a sell-off somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30%, and we were at our worst, down about 25%. The complicating factor is we typically don't bottom this early before the recession starts. Um, So now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, right? I mean, these kind of streaks are meant to be broken, um, but it makes me a little mindful, particularly when you have a stock market and a bond market that are really you know glued together right i mean it's like today right stocks and bonds down together through all of november You had stocks and bonds up together mm-hmm. um and and the currencies thrown in there so i think you just have to be mindful of, you know some of these risks that you know it is certainly possible you know we saw it today with the payrolls that yields do start heading up again. And I suspect that will put pressure on at least the certainly the growth side of the market.
1: All right. Let's talk about post-it notes and catch up and hopefully not together because that would be kind of gross. First up would be 3M. I mean, this is a consumer products company to end all consumer products companies. I'm not sure scotch tape demand is going to drop <laughs> off even if we get a recession.
0: Yeah. And they have a lot of other industrial products and things that you don't think of. Right. But you're right. I mean, the beauty of 3M is they own all these patents, and frankly, they just make very good products that people are willing to pay a premium for, and as a shareholder, that's a great thing. Now, the not-so-great thing is they've got a couple litigation issues hanging out there. That's why the stock's as cheap as it is, and it yields 4.7%. I think the dividend's safe. They're Again, eventually, they're going to have to pay out a significant amount of money. The balance sheet is very good. It's just unclear how long you're going to have to sit there and wait before People are willing to take a step in. It just is one of those, no no analyst wants to be positive on the stock because, you know, it's got this overhang on it, but it's a long-term, you know, has historically been a very good blue chip, and I suspect it will return to that. At some point.
1: Yeah. And I mean, of course, we know them for their consumer products, but not the DIS3M, they're actually getting bigger and bigger into energy. They make parts that go into wind turbines. They make parts that go into solar panels. They make nuclear stuff. They're an oil and gas. So they're actually kind of yeah. a secret energy company in a way.
0: And they do healthcare. They do, you know, uh, auto repair, you know, all things to make things easier and better. Uh, and again, you know, the, their secret sauce is that they come up with these things proprietarily, and then they can charge for them. And, uh, you know, as long as that continues, I think you can feel pretty good about owning the company for a really long time.
1: Well, I, I'm not sure their sauces are as good as Kraft Heinz's. Let's <laughs> hope that you said secret sauce. Let's talk about the sauce king, and that is Kraft Heinz as well. Kind of a similar, you know, not a, you're not going to get 30% growth out of Kraft Heinz, but that's kind of not the idea right now anyway.
0: Yeah, and it's been a dog for a while. Yep. Um, you know, part of it was people got excited about it because Buffett put a good bit of money into it. He even admits he paid too much for the stock because just food companies just aren't as good as they used to be. But not as good as they used to be doesn't mean it's not a good company. Um, and they underinvested for quite a long time in the brands. I think they've done a really good job of starting to reinvigorate the brands. They've done some innovation. Now it's it's kind of old, but it's my personal favorite is the the Mayo Chup. So which is really that combo of uh, mayo and ketchup in one bottle, which I like, um, and, you know, it built a better body for me. I, I know that um, if I could so, see it, Bill, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a lot of like interesting innovation, uh, you know, that I think will do just fine. And you know, you get a dividend of 4% along the way, they may be able to pass along some price increases. You know, It's kind of one of those sneaky recession plays because likely if there's a recession, people might eat at home more, uh, and that would obviously go right into their wheelhouse as well.
1: By the way, we are going to be live in Brussels, Belgium on Monday morning. You mentioned mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is for fries, not ketchup. (laughs) Mayonnaise is the way to go. Bill Stone, Glenview Trust, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, by the way, do not miss the final event of CNBC Pro Week. That is today at 3 p.m. on your second screen. Christina Parts is sitting down with RBC's Mark Mahaney with his take on tech and tech stocks. He'll take some of your questions. Sign up now for your second screen at CNBC.com slash ProTalks. All right. On deck. European Union officials, they are now backing a $60 price cap on Brent crude oil. And with full sanctions set to go into effect against Russia next week, We are gonna lay out the three scenarios that could have very different outcomes for the global energy markets. That is next. Plus, three themes to watch and a way to invest in each. How you can play the Fed decision, the jobs number, and the energy story, all coming up in our Trader Triple Play. The Exchange is back after this.
4: This is The Exchange. On CNBC.
5: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Jenny! Or starting your dream business welcome to Connie's coffee how may I help you AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aARP start planning today at aarp.org/ money tools
6: what's on the horizon for financial markets?
1: Next week is a big one for the global energy markets, both for Europe and the world. First, you got OPEC meets on Sunday and a small cut, I'm telling you, could happen. Then on Monday, it gets even more interesting because that's the day the European Union sanctions on Russian oil into Europe kick in. Now, they are designed to stop the sale of nearly all Russian oil going into the continent. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but there is still some Russian oil going into Europe. And that is not all. As we speak, European Union commissioners and the G7, including the United States, look like they have come to a decision on a price cap for Russian oil of $60 in Brent crude. That would try to limit the price that Russia can charge by selling oil to other countries like China, India, Turkey, and more. Ones that have continued to buy. And like we said earlier, it looks like they have agreed to a $60 cap, and that is about a 25% discount below the current price, but probably right around where oil is being sold by Russia anyway. Okay, so sanctions into Europe and a price cap for the rest of the world. It is a lot to take in. And what's even more complicated is how Russia and Putin might react to it all. Remember, Putin has said that they will accept no price cap whatever the final number there is. Okay, so there's a lot of potential outcomes, but Rystad Energy with The Economist have done some great work on laying out the three possible scenarios and outcomes. We have combined it with our own work and research as well. So, and this is very rough, but it should give you an idea. Here we go, scenario one, things kind of stay about the same as they are now. You got Russian oil getting sanctioned, right? That's Monday, right? There is a price cap, Russia's annoyed, they're unhappy, but they keep the majority of their oil flowing. Yes, costs for Europe probably rise a bit because there's probably going to be a shortfall of about a million barrels of oil per day, at least at the beginning. But that's kind of the status quo outcome. Okay, number two, the scenario we'll call escalation. Russia gets really angry. They cut their oil production, as they've said they might, in retaliation. They hope that prices rise. Less oil, but at a higher price, same revenue. They could also shut off the one last remaining pipeline to Europe They could stop selling LNG, which, by the way, they're actually almost secretly doing right now. Again, doesn't get a lot of attention. OPEC may be cutting in sympathy, fearing a major economic slowdown. And then prices rise. That's scenario two. All right, scenario three, the worst case. Don't even want to bring it up, but got to do it. Call this the all-out energy war. All remaining Russian pipelines, they're cut off. Other pipelines, like big one coming from Norway or others, end up getting sabotaged like the Nord Stream was. Millions of Russian barrels disappear from the market. This puts Europe, and maybe the world, into a deep slowdown, recession, etc. OPEC does a massive cut to try to keep prices elevated. This is the so-called doomsday or energy war scenario. Now, that is highly unlikely, but it cannot be discounted to zero. So let's find out what is most likely to happen and bring in Vice President of Analysis at Rystad Energy, Jorge Leon. He and the Rystad team have done great work on this, kind of using a lot of their data here, Jorge, so great stuff. Uh, Thank you for joining us. In your mind, which of these scenarios, and again, they're kind of rough outlines, which of those scenarios is the most likely
7: outcome? Thank you, Brian, for having me here. Um, It's always a pleasure. So at this point in time, I wouldn't rule out any of the three scenarios. Things can go south very, very fast, I think. Um, now, one would obviously want to avoid as much as we can, the scenario three, the energy war scenario, but things can go south very fast, as I, as I said. One, on one extreme, we have the base case, let's say, or your mild scenario, where it will be painful, but the European Union, the world, will be able to overcome that. And on you know, the other extreme, you have the extreme scenario, of course, which will be extremely painful for the global economy and for consumers around the world. Okay.
1: That said... To your point, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know how Russia's going to react. We don't know how the shipping markets are going to react, etc. What do we do know right now? What are sort of the certainties as we go into the weekend?
7: I think there are three certainties. Even though these scenarios show a wide range of uncertainty, I think that we know three things. The first one is that the energy crisis is far from over. Yes, the European Union has made it through this winter, uh, essentially paying a high LNG cost and a mild weather. So we've been very lucky. That's the first certainty. Energy crisis is not over. The second half of uh, next year could be painful. The second certainty, I think, is that Europe especially will have to pay a premium for diversifying imports away from Russia. That's energy security. So energy security comes with a, with a cost. And then finally, the third certainty is that oil and gas prices will remain elevated for the next for the coming months or so. Always when there's a disruption in the market, there's going to be some price action, and that's going to affect the global economy and also, again, consumers around the world.
1: It looks like they've agreed on a price cap of $60 for Brent crude. That's about 25% below where Brent is right now, Jorge. But with your own data, it's not my data, it's yours, you have seen Russian oil that is actually trading because they have to sell it at a discount, below $60 a barrel right now. So do you think this cap, if oil prices kind of stay where they are, is going to do anything?
7: So I think it very much depends on the reaction of of Russia. Uh, Great that we finally have certainty from the European Union about the price cap level, um, just a few hours before the embargo kicks in. But I think there are two pieces of the puzzle that are still uncertain, Russian reaction They've been very clear saying that they will not sell oil at the, at the discount um, you know if, if countries or companies signed up to up to a price cap it remains to be seen if they still take that hard stand and then the second puzzle is what would China and India do in this in this scenario and this is this is still uncertain so uh, we expect to see some action. In the, in the coming months, in the, in the coming days, actually.
1: Well, you used to work at OPEC. I hope that's OK with me saying that. Um, Senior inside the building in Vietnam. Sad that we're not going to be there on Sunday, but OPEC is still meeting. They're meeting virtually. So a lot of people are like, oh, they're not going to do anything because it's virtual. And maybe they won't do anything. I think they could still have a small cut. But now that we have a price cap, how do you see OPEC reacting to the sanctions and the current price levels?
7: It's a very difficult one for, for OPEC, I think, this time. Uh, as you correctly mentioned, they're meeting on Sunday. And essentially, they have to balance all the, the the risks that we see on the market right now. And the first one, we discussed Russia. What is going to be the reaction of Russia? What's going to be the reaction of China and India to the announcement? Still don't know. But on top of that, you have also the uncertainty from the demand side Renewed lockdowns in China, growing COVID cases, and we still don't know what's what's happening there. So my expectation here, and it, that is that OPEC might take a cautious approach on Sunday. We'll wait until the dust settles before taking taking any decision.
1: We know that Russia has been kind of almost secretly buying up, or somebody on behalf of Russia, China perhaps, a bunch of old sort of crappy old but, but seaworthy oil tankers to maybe kind of get around some of these sanctions. Uh, we're going to talk more about that, by the way, in our full coverage, which starts on Monday from Europe. That said, how many barrels of oil do you think when the sanctions kick in, the price cap is ratified as we expect it to be? How many barrels of Russian oil per day do you think may, in the near term, come off the market?
7: If Russia does not sell to anybody obeying to the, the price cap, we think that around a million barrels per day might be lost in the first quarter of, of next of next year and that's because of the limitations on the fleet on the tanker fleet of of Russia. But as you correctly mentioned, as they gradually build that that fleet, maybe production will will start recovering. but in the short term impact around a million.
1: yeah, it's pretty unbelievable that they've been uh, kind of secretly perhaps building up a secret oil Navy as I'll call it. But again, we're going to talk more about that on Monday with our live coverage from Brussels, Belgium, where the sanctions are kicking in. Jorge Leon, amazing stuff by you and your entire team. Appreciate the work. Vic, Elliot, everybody. Thank you very much. All right. So as we mentioned about 100 times, all next week, well, not all, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to be live in Europe. Now, there's a lot of angles here. Monday, we're going to be covering the OPEC meeting, plus the EU sanctions, plus the price cap reaction. Okay. so it's kind of an oil day Monday. On Tuesday, we're going to head to the Netherlands. We're going to take a look. At their shortfall of gas. You just heard Jorge say it. The problem is not over. It could get worse next year. We're going to talk about the role of US LNG, a Marshall Plan for Energy, if you will. Run the math. See if they can get through next year as well. What companies will benefit. Talk about all that. And then on Wednesday, we're going to talk about the role of renewables. Try to get off gas altogether in some industries that they can. And we got a really cool shot coming up on Wednesday. I'm going to be really high up looking down on something really cool, I hope. All right, assuming my flight takes off. All right, coming up. It feels like every day now, a different company is announcing a round of layoffs. That is making some employees consider choosing career cushioning. What the heck is that? Sharon Epperson is here to tell you what it is and what employers need to know. Plus, we know it's been a rough year for most investors. And while some of you may be thinking about putting your portfolio out to pasture, Your next guest says it's time to bring the pasture into your portfolio. Stick around.
5: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.
1: The exchange markets right now, they are in the red in the week. The Dow's low of the day was down 355. So, want to find a bright spot? We're not in the low of the day. We're down 121. NASDAQ, though, down about eight tenths of 1%. Here are some of the movers at this hour Ulta Beauty, touching an all time high before going flat, out after reporting earnings that beat all categories and saying that spending jumped across the board, across all income levels. Cosmetics company also raising its outlook for the year. Stock's down a bit. It did have a nice pop. That's that little green thing you see there. Marvell technology falling after mixed third quarter results, much weaker than expected guidance. That stock's down 3.5%. And Boeing getting a bump on Monday on reports United Airlines. It's close to buying dozens of Boeing 787 Dreamliners. That order would be worth billions of dollars. And the Chinese tech names They're getting another bump today, and they're up big for the week. JD.com, Alibaba, all rallying about 20% this week. Pinduoduo up 33%. Maybe some hopes of uh, a reopening there. We'll see. All right, let's see what else is going on outside of the markets. Tyler Matheson with a CNBC News
4: update. Brian, thank you very much, and here is your CNBC News update uh, up to the minute. Part of Interstate 90 in northwest Indiana remains closed after a UPS semi-truck caught fire crashed off a bridge and dangled between two overpasses my goodness uh, into a river below officials say emergency crews were able to rescue uh, the driver and transport him to a nearby hospital he was released with minor injuries no other vehicles were involved but the traffic snarl is epic. Germany's Chancellor Scholz had a call with Vladimir Putin, where he condemned Russia's airstrikes against civilian infrastructure in Ukraine and stressed Germany's determination to support Ukraine. According to the Kremlin, Putin told Scholz that the call in, during the call that the German and Western line on Ukraine was destructive, and urged Berlin to rethink its approach. And a new survey from Natixis investment managers found that 35% of millionaires say it's quote going to take a miracle to be ready for retirement. This is millionaires speaking. Americans now expect they will need $1.25 million to retire comfortably as higher costs strain household budgets. That's a 20% jump from the $1.05 million cited just last year, according to a separate survey from Northwestern Mutual. Brian, whatever it uh, the cost turns out to be, it's pretty high.
1: But it's not what you make, it's what you spend, right? I mean, if you want to keep the lifestyle you have while you're making a million dollars a year, that's a whole different can of worms.
4: No, that's right. You have to either you have to adjust to where the income is. By the way, your solid gold Bentley scraped my rolls out
1: in the parking <laughs> lot. Get... Yeah, right. Right, exactly. Have a good weekend, man. Tyler, you too. Thanks very much. All right, up next, investors are staring down the barrel of a potentially fifth straight three-quarters of a percent rate hike. So what do you do about it? Gina Sanchez up next with some ideas. All right, welcome back. Stocks, they're lower, but they're way off session lows after the stronger than expected jobs number. All of that is the market. And everybody else still digesting Jay Powell's signal that rate hikes will likely start too slow. So as an investor, how do you make sense of it all? Well, your next guest says she's watching three key themes going forward. And she's bringing in three ways to buy in. Let's bring in Gina Sanchez, chief market strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. All right, theme one. Beaten down, but great outlook. What does it mean? What's the pick?
8: So here we're just expecting that no matter where the Fed finally ends up uh, peaking out at rates, whether it's uh, four and a quarter, four and a half, maybe even as high as five, Not very many people are expecting a rate easing cycle after this. So whatever we've lost in multiples are probably not coming back. So everything you buy into right now has to be a great earnings story. So one of the earnings stories that we look is a long-term story. It's got some near-term weakness, but a long-term great story, it's Microsoft. Microsoft Cloud is still growing strong double digits, 20%, Azure's growing 35% in terms of earnings. And while these numbers um, are, are you know, slowing for the, the near term because we are going into a recession and we're not seeing quite as many upgrades, the long-term story there is still very strong. Okay,
1: theme number two, consumer spending power. Okay, I I can even even I can understand what that means. So who's the what's the theme?
8: So here, obviously, you heard the great jobs number this morning. Um, We heard that uh, wage growth is still reasonably strong. Um, and, and obviously, there's still a lot of pent up demand. We still have a shortage of workers, and so people are finding jobs, and they're finding jobs pretty quickly. Um, we're seeing lots of layoffs coming, and you know what that means for the slowdown. I think is more than priced priced into many of these consumer stocks. So Nike is a great example of a great brand, and there you actually have um, a double, uh, you know, sort of a double bump, which is that you have decent strong consumer growth, but you also have the anticipated China recovery. And Nike will hugely benefit from the China recovery. So it's an incredible brand um, and one that we think is going to recover, and it's definitely been beaten down as well.
1: All right, here we go. theme number three, and this is Energy beneficiary. Of course, I you know I've talked about energy once or twice here. JB. Hunt, a trucking company. How's that an energy beneficiary?
8: Uh, yeah. So, look, here we're talking about, you know, oil. the oil supply market is is adjusting to the fact that this conflict in Ukraine is not going away. Um, We've already seen oil prices drop from 110 all the way down to as low as the high 70s. It's obviously still in the 80s right now. Um, But there are lots of segments of the economy that were crushed when oil went up, transport being a big one. Um, And so you look at a company like J.B. Hunt, not only are they a transport company, but they're a transport company that's invested a tremendous amount into technology. In fact, they're, they're you know, seen as a big disruptor in this industry with their um, you know, J.B. Hunt 360 platform um, that is making the entire logistics uh, experience uh, a lot more efficient. So you know, we see a lot of room for them to benefit from oil prices at a, at a lower level, um, but also to benefit from the investments that they've made into technology.
1: There you go. J.B. Hunt, Nike, Microsoft, Gina Sanchez. Thank you. All
8: right? Thank you, Brian.
1: All right. Always welcome. Still ahead. The jobs report blown past expectations today. At the same time, we are continuing to see layoffs of a growing number of companies. Huh? And as a result, a growing number of workers are doing something called career cushioning. What is that? Sharon Epperson is along with it next. All right, welcome back. Today's jobs number show job growth in November was much better than expected. Yet layoffs at big tech companies, Twitter, Meta, Amazon, Salesforce, more. They're making headlines. So what is the likelihood that mass layoffs will hit other industries as well? For more now in the jobs market, we're joined by CBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson. Sharon.
6: Well, you know, we're looking at these numbers, Brian, and we're saying, well, they must be mega layoffs looking at 320 thousand job cuts so far this year, but actually that number is the lowest number, according to Challenger Gray and Christmas, that they've seen since they started looking at these numbers in 1993. What's What are we hearing about? We're hearing about tech We're hearing about the tech layoffs that you mentioned, the companies that you talked about. As one story on cbc.com puts it, they're loud layoffs. They're in the social media. They're in the media. Mm -hmm. We're talking about them all the time. But the reality is the layoff numbers that we're seeing in automotive, in healthcare, services, retail, not nearly as high as what we're seeing in technology. But still, it's making people think about it and worry about it for their own jobs.
1: Well, and so that's leading them to do something that you – maybe this is your term. I'm going to quote Sharon back to Sharon. Career Cushioning.
6: That's what HR. I've heard of quiet are. quitting. Quiet quitting. What's and career cushioning? Now we're talking about career cushioning. This is a term that I did not come up with. That HR leaders are looking at, and it's what is a tried and true strategy of making sure that you protect and secure your greatest asset, your career. Making sure that you are positioning for a new job because you're concerned about the job mm. you have. You're looking at your resume. You're building new skills. You're Networking with as many people as possible inside and outside of your company. But what business leaders need to know is their employees are doing this. They're concerned and they're worried and looking elsewhere at the Uh, moment.
1: All right. So if I'm an HR department and I think my employees are looking elsewhere, I can maybe maybe they're talking about it in the open or they're disgruntled or whatever. What's some advice? to those folks, the HR folks.
6: Well, I think management needs to be honest about where they are in the in, in their industry and and whether or not they're going to be resilient in the year ahead. What do people need to be doing? What, how can they build confidence in what they're doing now in their reorganization strategy if they have one? And talk to the people that you want to retain about their career plans. What have they done that's good for the company? Mm-hmm. What do they do, need to do more of? Give them some guidance and some indication that you want them to remain there. And then also how they can benefit from staying with your company and not going elsewhere, knowing that they're already looking.
1: Do you think the, the uh, pace of pay hikes is starting to slow because for two years, I mean, top talent could pretty much name their price or they bolt.
6: I think a lot of people may not be negotiating as hard because they want to make sure that they have a job, particularly if they've been laid off or if they're concerned that that's going to happen. So that may indeed happen. Sounds like the
1: power is flipping back to the the company.
6: Or at least getting more
1: Moderating a bit. All right, Sharon Epperson, always great stuff on the job market. Thank you, Sharon. Appreciate it. Sure. All right, coming up, Down on the farm. If you're looking for a true inflation hedge and maybe you just like farming, we're going to talk about how and what you should be buying. That is next. Plus, auto sales, they've long been a bright spot in the economy. But are we finally starting to see some cracks? talk about that as well. We're back in two. All right. Inflation is cooling off a little bit, but there's one asset that is pretty much hotter than ever. That is farmland. Interest in investing in farms is at a 30-year high, and some experts say it is one of the best inflation hedges out there. So it's it time to grow your portfolio in a totally different way. Seema Modi is here with more. Seema, what can you tell us about the farmland?
9: So, Brian, in addition to being an inflation hedge, higher crop prices are contributing to rising farmland values, plus a transfer in wealth, families inheriting the land and choosing to sell it because they no longer live on the farm. They've moved to the city. Average price per acre for farm real estate. $3,800, $3,800, that's the highest on record in this nation, up 12.4% year over year, according to the Department of Agriculture, with values in Iowa, Illinois, above 8,000 an acre, interest expanding to the Pacific Northwest as well, and that's attracting new investors.
10: But what we're seeing is new buyers, new entrants into the market that have historically not been in the farmland asset class, and they're coming in with cash, you know, pulling it out of equities in other places. And they're looking at this as an inflation hedge.
9: The Mormon Church, Bill Gates' family office, to private equity firms like Sixth Street Capital. They're among the investors buying the land, in most cases leasing it out to farmers. Uh, there's two real estate investment trusts with exposure. That's Farmland Partners and Gladstone. You can see they've outperformed over the past three years. Experts, including Bruce Sherrick, he's uh, the University of Illinois professor. He he says one of the big risks and opportunities is going to be China. Right now, one-fifth of our agriculture exports go to China. That's about $38 billion a year. If the economy slows down, that could bring crop prices and farmland down with it. Brian?
1: All right. Seema Modi, Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. So exactly how do you invest in farmland? I mean, I guess you just buy a farm. Maybe it's not that easy. Let's ask Martin Davies. He is global head of Nuveen Natural Capital. So if I believe SEMA's report, and of course I do, do I just, what, start asking
11: realtors for a couple acres in Iowa? How does this work? Hi, Brian. Great, Great to be here. So I think there's never been a better time to invest in farmland. Many different ways in which an investor can access the asset class. Um, there are some there is some exchange traded vehicles. There's opportunities to invest in funds for qualified investors. Uh, there are new um, platforms online which investors can use, and of course, an investor can invest directly in farmland. But the the one thing I would say is that if you want consistent returns there in farmland, you really have to diversify. So a a vehicle in which you can get some diversification is critical to deliver consistent returns over time. Okay, like what? How do we do it? So, if you have a diversified fund, you might have different crop types, different locations, uh, different ways of operating the assets. So, you might lease out row crop land and, and operate uh, permanent crop land. So, different return profiles uh, give you complementary aspects, and that gives you the stability and resilience and and very stable returns over the long term.
1: Yeah, so is it better to to physically buy the land or no? It sounds like you're recommending financial instruments as the better way to do it.
11: No, the, the, the characteristics that you're really looking for not being correlated to the economic cycle, the inflation hedge characteristics and low volatility of returns and strong returns as well, fundamentally, you need to actually have freehold ownership of the land. Um, instruments won't give you the same characteristics, so Owning that farmland, cool farmland, high quality, and that'll deliver consistent returns in the long term. Is there a
1: better crop? I mean, it, like, if I was going to, okay, I believe what Martin's saying, I want to own farmland, what am I buying?
11: We try and diversify globally. So we have investments in the U.S., but also in other locations, Australia, uh, South America, Europe. We've got 46 different crop types growing across 2.2 million acres globally. And all those different crop types, you're, you haven't got a correlation between the different returns in those crop types. And that's really what give you, gives you the strength in the, in the construction of the portfolio. So it we'll always advocate for diversification. Agriculture's primary production, so we can't get away from weather risk, commodity price volatility and government intervention and regulation as well is something that we have to deal with. So diversification is key. What kind of returns can we expect? The good proxy for returns, Brian, is the Nacreth U.S. Farmland Index, which over a long period of time, the index goes back to 1990. Um, so we've seen returns, total returns of about 10% with the index. That's about 4% coming from appreciation and um, 6% coming from uh, income. So you've got complimentary returns and very stable over the long-term.
1: Martin Davies, Nuveen Natural Capital. I love talking about it, something completely different. Martin, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. All right, coming up, the auto market. I mean, it's been red hot for years, but is it really starting to crack? We're gonna get the latest sales numbers Ford and what they may tell us about car sales overall. That's with Phil. Stick around. All right, the American automobile market makes up nearly 3% of total GDP, and it's been a very, very bright spot for the economy. Ford, though, reporting a big drop in sales last month. So, is this bright spot seeing some clouds? Figure it out. Philippo joining us now with more. I do wonder, Phil, is the drop just a measure of they can't get the cars made or the trucks made or is it a real softening?
10: Well, it's a number of factors, Brian, and I know that's not the answer you're looking for. Keep in mind that when you look at Ford's November sales, down 7.8%, that's in comparison with November of last year, where the chip crisis, they had better supply in November of last year. It's really hard to do these year-over-year comparisons right now. It's very lumpy right now. The bright spot for Ford, it's EV sales. And they only have three models right now that are electric. There, It's up 103%, but keep in mind that's coming off of a small base. F-150 Lightning sales for the month of November – just over 2,000. As you take a look at shares of Ford this year, the stock is down because it's still predominantly an internal combustion engine vehicle manufacturer. And as a result, that market is feeling some pressure right now, especially if pricing has to come down. But it's EV sales of the F 150 Lightning totaling more than 13,000. And as you look at where EV sales are expected to go in the U.S., by the end of the decade, it's going to be up close to 40%. At least that's the estimate, according to the LMC Automotive. Ford is going to be ramping up F-150 Lightning production to 150,000 units per year. That's going to happen over the next year, year and a half, and they expect to be a big player here. By the way, they have now passed Hyundai-Kia for number two in the U.S. when it comes to EV sales. Yet, as you take a look at the uh, automakers, some of the primary ones here, the reason the traditional automakers are lower, Brian, is because many are saying we're not seeing the level of demand that is out there, in part because prices are so high. They're going to have to come down at some point here. And when you look at Tesla, completely different beast, even with the unveiling of the semi-truck last night. Uh, Its issues are separate from the rest of the auto industry right now.
1: Okay. Let's talk about Elon Musk because we don't talk about the guy enough. But this semi, this tractor trailer truck is unbelievable looking.
10: Yes, it is. Absolutely. And and everybody has said this since they first unveiled it back in 2017. The final version looks pretty similar to what we saw back then. Uh, When you look at the cab, you have a steering wheel in the middle as opposed to either on the right or the left. Um, And if it delivers the performance that they're touting, it could be a game changer for the trucking industry. But keep in mind, they're not the only ones building an electric semi-truck. There are others who are working on this. So it's not going to have this market all to itself. And there are more than a few on Wall Street who are very skeptical that they're gonna be able to ramp up to 50,000 semi-trucks a year production by 2024. A lot of analysts are saying, eh, I don't see it moving the needle. And this thing works, right? They're not like just rolling it down a hill. For a commercial oh, yes it works yeah you know well, what they, I'm, we, you know we're what i'm not looking we are not looking at another nicholas situation when they first showed that model back when they were you know first going Look through the process of a SPAC ipo right, rolling down a hill in wherever nevada or <laughs> phoenix or something this runs oh it runs it runs and it'll be interesting to see how much demand is out there and how much of that demand tesla can meet keep in mind there's a lot of pre-orders out there Pre-orders are great. Now can you convert those into actual deliveries? PepsiCo got the first one last night.
1: Well, there you go. I, I can't wait to see one on the road. I'll be like, there's the cyber truck, whatever. The, not the cyber, but the se- cyber semi truck. Phil LeBeau, really good stuff. Appreciate it. Cool looking truck, too. Phil, thank you. You bet. All right. Well, speaking of energy, do not forget, we're going to be live in Europe Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We're going to be covering the OPEC meeting, the EU sanctions, the price cap, everything. That is Monday. Tuesday, we're focusing on gas. Can Europe, with almost no Russian gas, make it through next year? And the role of US LNG. We're going to name companies, price targets, how much they can actually send and fill. And then on Wednesday, more on the renewables. How much can renewables actually grow and actually plug some of these holes? We'll see you there. I'll see you on it. I'll see you in Power Lunch, actually, in 40 minutes. But the show begins
5: right now.